This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Kylie Morris. Great to have your company again this week for Between the Lines. On this week's show, have you ever been to Disneyland Florida? It's the world's most visited theme park and for the last 50 years, the Magic Kingdom has enjoyed magical freedoms from local zoning and planning laws. It collects its own taxes and runs its own services. In short, it's an experiment in municipal governance dreamt up in the early 1960s by Walt Disney himself. But after a dispute with Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis over his Don't Say Gay bill, Disney's special arrangements and privileges may come to an end. Zach Weissmuller from Reason magazine has that intriguing story later in the show. The world of diplomacy is full of crunchy acronyms. There's the Quad and AUKUS and other security and trade groups that are vital to Australian interests. Then there's a whole bunch of other more obscure groups that Australia signed up for, some of them a long time ago. And now those groups are well and truly past their use-by dates, possibly even zombie-like. Hayley Channer reviews and recommends which groups should stay and which ones might go. But first to Ukraine's bid to join an expanding European Union. Even as Ukrainian forces continue to fight back against Russia with weaponry supplied by neighbours and allies, Kiev's diplomatic campaign to join the Club of Europe moves up a gear next week. An EU summit in Brussels will consider Ukraine's application for EU membership, but not everyone is in favour and there are other nations waiting in line who won't be thrilled by Ukraine cutting in. Rosa Balfour is director of Carnegie Europe. Rosa, welcome to Between the Lines. Nice to be with you. Let's start head on with Ukraine, Rosa. It's taken its first steps toward applying for EU membership. What stage are they at now? Well, right now they have they have submitted an application, and um, the Commission imminently needs to um, offer an opinion as to whether the country is actually ready not to start accession talks, but just to become a candidate for EU accession. So the process is actually quite long, and this really is the very first step. Uh, the Commission offers an opinion which is um, based on an analysis of the uh, degree to which the country matches a set of criteria pertaining to uh, democracy and um, the the economic status of the country will offer the opinion. And then next week, all the EU member states will gather in this summit and they will have to unanimously decide whether, on the basis of the Commission's opinion, whether they are willing to grant Ukraine, um, and Moldova is also another uh, potential candidate, whether they will grant these uh, two countries candidate status. There's a third country which has also applied, and that is Georgia. And the rumours are at the moment that it will not be considered ready to uh, be given a candidate status, both because of democratic backsliding within the country, but also because... Georgia at the moment is not seen as being under the same threat that Ukraine is currently and that Moldova could be potentially um, because of the the war, because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Rosa, is it at this stage that uh, the Commission will consider the fact that the war with Russia has drained the Ukrainian economy, uh, the cleanup and rebuilding costs there will presumably be astronomical? 
So there must be questions over whether or not Ukraine's kind of economic and fiscal fitness, the kind of requirements that are normally um, necessary in order to join the EU. Ukraine's reconstruction is going to fall overwhelmingly on the shoulders of Europe as a whole anyhow. What the um, opinion really looks at is more, shall we say, at the infrastructure of a country. Um, to what extent does it have the capacity, for instance, to implement the conditions of a free market economy? Uh, to what extent does it have the capacity to hold free and fair elections? So it's actually more institutional uh, rather than where the country stands economically. Of course, there's a broader question about the EU's expansion generally. There are so many others waiting in line. As you mentioned, there are negotiations are already underway with Albania, Montenegro, North Macedonia, Serbia and Turkey. Turkey's been waiting since 2005. Bosnia and Herzegovina yeah. have applied. And now you have these latecomers, Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia. So are there actually enough chairs in Brussels to accommodate everyone? Is this kind of EU expansionism gone mad? Well, yes, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, the first um, challenge, potential challenge, is that the country in the Western Balkans, who were uh, overall um, promised a prospect of accession back in 2003, Again, so the promise of the prospects of accession is not becoming an, a candidate country. But in 2003, there was, you know, EU leaders made a solemn promise that these countries could join. And since then, only Croatia has joined in 2013. Um, so that process already took 10 years. And these countries, you know, they start this process knowing full well that it is lengthy. Uh, but at the moment, especially with respect to the Balkans, it has really become very lengthy. And hope is, uh, has been fading in the Western Balkans for joining um, the EU anytime soon. So what they're worried about is that you have new countries with a major geopolitical threat pushing their way ahead of the queue um, and that they will be granted um, a candidate status sooner. To an extent, uh, I don't think this is likely to happen because the EU is actually quite lukewarm about enlargement um, overall. So the key challenge will be, on the one hand, to send a positive signal of support to the new to the new countries that want to join and on at the same time to find a way to make the accession process so the actual detail of the process the diplomacy uh, the degree to which the eu supports the necessary transformation of these countries so that they are well prepared to join the union then the eu really needs to make that process work better because it hasn't been. Um, and that's one of the major reasons for which it, the process has taken so, is taking so long with the Western Balkans. Rosa, Russian aggression has galvanised the EU to some extent when it comes to support for Ukraine. But it's such a lengthy process. You'd have to assume that goodwill at the time of your application doesn't necessarily guarantee ultimate success. Yes, no, that is um, precisely the point. The whole accession process is designed around carrots and sticks. The more progress countries make in transforming their democracies and their economies, the closer they should get to Europe. Um, and they get some incentives to move along that path. And the less they transform, uh, the more sticks are out there to keep them at a distance. Uh, the problem is that the EU has not been very good at using these carrots and sticks. So de facto, it 
has been supporting political leaders in the Balkans in particular who have not been pushing for reform. So that really is is where the EU needs to focus in order to make this this um, process credible. Because if it's not credible, you risk losing the support of those pro-Western, pro-European actors that do exist in Ukraine, in Moldova, throughout the Western Balkans, um, in Turkey as well. You lose that support. But also the geopolitical power of the accession process gets lost because it's it's no longer credible. So if one imagines that enlargement is one way to counter Russian um, aggression in Eastern Europe and Russian influence in the Western Balkans, well, then it needs to be a credible process. France has the presidency currently, Rosa. How much does it matter what the preferred view from Paris is toward expansionism and particularly Ukraine's application? Well, France has been one of the countries that has historically been most ambivalent towards enlargement. France has been one of those countries that has been consistently arguing that the EU needs to consolidate before it can expand. So at the moment, the fact that it is France that holds the presidency is a little bit um, tricky uh, because as the president of the rotating um, council, um, uh, France ought to be a consensus builder, ought to be a moderator rather than push forward its own uh, positions. But Macron, French President Emmanuel Macron has been quite um, vocal and and, um, articulate um, in his ideas for Europe's global role. And among them, a recent um, proposal to create a European political community, which would go beyond the membership of the European Union and embrace the whole European continent. So it would include countries that do not belong to the EU, that do not wish to belong to the EU, but also countries that do wish to belong to the EU. So while there might be a lot of, there might be a very um, um, persuasive logic in this model, especially in light of the, the Russian aggression, um, at the same time, those countries that want to join the EU worry that they might be stuck in a limbo and may not, you know, in this limbo of this European political community, and that they may, may never be able to join. So it causes some suspicion in certain quarters, uh, certainly in the Western Balkans, um, but also in Ukraine, and President Zelensky has been very explicit um, that you know, he expects uh, the European Union to offer a proper uh, prospect of accession and not just to become members of an outer layer of this European construction. And then also, sorry, amongst some of the EU member states that are eager for the EU to push for um, letting Ukraine in. And here I'm speaking of Poland, the Baltic states. Um, They have been very um, vocal in in wanting um, a prospect of accession to be offered to Ukraine. And so this idea of a European political community um, if you know, if taken out of context, it might be very persuasive. In the present con- context of war, where there is already a lot of suspicion um, towards France and towards Germany because of the response to the war and because of their historic relationship with Russia, um, this call co- this risks causing rifts within the um, EU at a time when actually EU unity um, is what has been sought all around. But you know. Beneath this unity, there are 
um, divisions, um, and they could hamper um, Europe's response to the um, to the Russian aggression in, in Ukraine. And a factor in all of that, presumably, Rosa, is the calculation for the union of the advantages in including Ukraine versus the risks in further alienating Moscow. Well, exactly. These, this is um, this is what is um, currently behind a lot of the behind the behind closed doors talks. Um, there are um, countries, Germany, France, are among them, which have had a long, you know, long-standing historic relations with Moscow. Um, these are the two countries that negotiated uh, the peace agreement. Um, with Moscow back in 2014 when it invaded Ukraine and annexed Crimea. And this is seen um, elsewhere as a failed policy, uh, a policy that did not prevent Russia from in invading Ukraine again. When Macron or Scholz uh, speak to President Putin or when they discuss or start raising the idea of a ceasefire or of a peace settlement, um, those countries that were already, you know, sceptical of the success of the Minsk agreement and those, those countries that now are arguing that we need to push back Russia and make sure that Ukraine recovers its uh, territory in its entirety and that Russia is not able to invade again, you know, there's, there's a gap there. And that that the space in this gap is up for discussion. We don't know really how things are going to evolve. A lot will depend on the, on what happens on the ground, what happens um, in the war. Um, a lot will depend on what um, Zelensky and what Ukraine um, decides its future should be. And Macron and Schultz have actually. Been, have said this, that, you know, it really depends on what Ukraine wants. But there is a lot of preoccupation that the war will not lead to Ukraine recovering its territory in its entirety, and that therefore it will be necessary to sit down at the table with Russia. Who's going to do that, on what grounds, um, with what goals, is still to be uh, discussed. Rosa, thank you. We'll have to leave it there. That's Rosa Balfour, who's the director of Carnegie Europe, based in Brussels, and a long-time observer of the machinations of the EU. Backroom dealings are plenty in the next days, as you heard. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris, and coming up... Australia has signed up to way too many regional strategic groups and agreements. While some serve Australian interests, others come from a different time and a different world. Hayley Channer reviews and recommends which groups should stay and which ones might go. Another week, another high-level shindig. Since taking office, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and his leadership team have been busy with high-level meetings in Japan, Indonesia and the Pacific. Now, as always, the intention of these summits is to develop or maintain a special relationship 
but can too many meetings and multilateral understandings have the opposite effect of what's intended? Now, according to my next guest, Australia has signed up to too many agreements and strategic groupings, and it's time for a bit of a clean out, time to prioritise which ones to keep and which ones should go. Hayley Channer is a senior policy fellow at the Perth USA Asia Centre and a Fulbright scholar currently in Washington, D.C. Hayley, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Hayley, let's talk about your report and research paper. It's called Maximising Australia's Memberships, Recalibrating Australia's Engagement with Indo-Pacific Groups. And you draw attention to an ever-expanding number of groups and relationships that Australia has signed up for. And now, this is prior to the election, obviously, of the Albanese government. But just how many currently does Australia participate in? So the whole idea for this paper, Maximising Australia's Memberships, came about after um, the AUKUS announcement at the end of last year and also this emergence of Quad Leaders Summits. It really got me thinking, you know, how many groups is Australia actually a member of? And I myself, a a former defence official where I worked in an international policy section, And I remember the sheer number of annual meetings that I had to help prepare our defence and foreign ministers for, as well as the Prime Minister. And the number of groups that Australia has signed up to is just eye-watering. So part of the reason that we're so keen, we're so eager to get involved in all of these groups is partly Australia's sense of geographic isolation. You know, we're right at the bottom of um, the Asia-Pacific and we're, you know, a uh, large geographical distance from any of our familiar, you know, countries like the United Kingdom or the United States. And for many decades, we've been reaching out to countries to form different groupings. So, for example, and not to give everyone a history lesson, but um, at the end of World War II, we joined the Five Eyes Intelligence Grouping, which is Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom, New Zealand and Canada. That is bookended with AUKUS at the end of last year, which is Australia, UK and the United States, which is a strategic grouping to help Australia acquire eight new nuclear submarines and also do some other defence cooperation stuff. All the time in between, altogether, we have actually joined up about 23 different strategic groupings, and that's just in our own Indo-Pacific alone. It's not even including things like the United Nations or the G20, for example. Hayley, has there been an acceleration in the number of groupings we've signed up to more recently? I mean, you you began with the history, you know, the the post-World War II Five Eyes arrangement, but when have the majority of those 20 strategic groupings been entered into? So in the last decade alone, we've joined 10 of those 23 groups. So we really do see a rapid expansion of Australia trying to join different groups in the region. And the vast majority of the 10 have been what I call um, mini-lateral groups, which is basically um, groups of countries of three, up to three to six, really, three to six countries. Um, So AUKUS is one of them, the Quad is one of them. Um, Others include Australia, United States, Japan. Um, There's also this other group called MICTA, It's the Mexico, Indonesia, Korea, Turkey, Australia agreement. And it's a really odd um, grouping of countries. Most of your listeners will never have heard of it. And the reason this group exists is actually because um, in the group of G20 countries, there's the um, very high level uh, G7 and there's another grouping called BRICS. 
And basically the MICTA countries were the ones left over. They're kind of unwanted leftovers. So unwanted leftovers isn't a good name, is it, for a group? No wonder they went with MICTA. Exactly. And, yeah, I don't really think a MICTA grouping, which we still strongly support. I mean, Australia hosted MICTA last year. There was a prime ministerial statement about MICTA. Um, Considering Turkey's had a real authoritarian turn since MICTA was established, there are lots of groups that just don't really make strategic sense for Australia anymore. And they're the ones that I think that Australia should really consider withdrawing from. The problem with diplomacy, though, is it's not that easy. Um, It's basically not easy to leave a group once you become a member um, because you you cause offence to pretty much everyone else in that group. And it must be tempting, Hayley, to keep it in your back pocket in in case the world changes. So in case something comes up, for example, in the Middle East and you need a direct line with Turkey to try to resolve something or to try and achieve a particular outcome, the fact that you that you belong to this group, which isn't generally particularly helpful, but on occasion can be, must mean that you think, well, let, let's not leave. Let's just not pay a lot of attention to it for a moment. Yeah, that's true. That's exactly right. I mean, some of these groups do open up other avenues. Um, they open up areas for dialogue that wouldn't have existed had we not had the group. And another really good point was made to me by a senior defence official in Canberra, which was that if you look at all of the groups Australia is currently a member of, some of those groups, you couldn't actually create them now. Like the strategic dynamics in the Indo-Pacific region with China's rise and all nations developing their militaries and this sort of tenser strategic environment that we have, you couldn't actually form these groups anymore because the circumstances are too difficult now. So Some of the groups are still important, but I'd also argue they take up a lot of diplomatic time and resources and energy that, frankly, Australia just doesn't have. And a lot of those relationships, too, you can just pick up the phone bilaterally and talk to your, you know, um, Turkish counterpart, for example. So I really think that Australia needs to to cut the fat in terms of the number of groups that we're a member of, because as you keep adding to this list without subtracting, you literally, you know, can't make more time in an annual calendar uh, to be able to attend all of these meetings. So you really do need to be clear-eyed and prioritise where in a way that we never have before. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris and my guest is Hayley Channer, a Senior Policy Fellow at the Perth US Asia Centre, and she's speaking from Washington. Hayley, let's be blunt. In your view... Which groups have passed their use-by date? If you were making an inventory and saying these ones need to go and you were advising a minister on which ones to step away from, which ones would you be suggesting? Obviously, we've talked about uh, MICTA. There's another two groups that uh, are even less strategically relevant, but they, you know, they're zombie groups. They just will not die. So the first one is the Asia-Europe meeting, ASEM. Basically, a grouping of Asian countries and Europe. And the purpose of that group was to increase awareness of Asia and Europe. (laughs) So it was established many years ago. And considering uh, the amount of trade and economic interactions between Asia and Europe, I don't think there's a real need to increase awareness or understanding of those two regions. We know each other well. And so for that reason, I really think ASEM is on the, the chopping board. Um, The second grouping is, it's got an unusual name, it's called FELAC. It is the Forum for East Asia and Latin America Cooperation. 
Again, this grouping was set up to increase economic ties between these two regions, but it really hasn't achieved that or at least what it has achieved, you know, it can't really go any further than what it's already done. So there's just not a lot of strategic or, you know, diplomatic economic rationale to maintain these groups, especially when there's so much more interaction at other international forums. So they're the two I'd really say to get rid of as well as MICTA. Hayley, you've you've advised defence in the in the past and have a good sense, obviously, of DFAT's policies as well. Is there a would you say a critical mass of opinion, a critical mass of concern uh, within those departments over these multiple alliances, these multiple multilateral organisations, or is it seen really as an unavoidable ex- exchange that Australia has to be involved in, even if it is time consuming? So this is a really challenging question. And the reason it's so difficult is because government departments in Canberra are responsive to and subservient to the leaders of the country. So Prime Minister Albanese, when he goes and has a summit somewhere, um, you know, he decides whether or not he attends. There is, you know, longstanding tradition, but ultimately sometimes leaders can also delegate down to a minister. The same with uh, Foreign Minister Penny Wong. You know, she will have some expectation um, of which meetings she will go to. And it really comes down to some departmental advice about which meetings are important. But also there's um, individual um, wishes of individual politicians about which relationships they really prioritise and want to pursue. So even if government departments were able to uh, start to focus and prioritise Australia's engagement, they might be sort of uh, blocked by this action because the leaders that they support want to keep these meetings going or the leaders haven't been installed for long enough and don't have enough support and, um, you know, uh, strength behind them to actually decline some of these meetings. So that's also part of why uh, we can't get out of some of these arrangements is because there's a real lack of political courage to be the first one to say, actually, no, this grouping is no longer relevant. Um, It's not actually delivering for Australia's national interests and I won't attend. Um, The inclination is just to continually downgrade so that you have really small amount of cooperation without actually saying, um, you know, cutting the cord. So it is very difficult for government agencies to prioritise well because of the political constraints. I'm guessing it's a burden on their time and resources, though, isn't it? Presumably, if you're prepping the minister for, you know, five five different multilateral meetings in the next or trilateral meetings in the next three months, then you can't really do anything else. Speaking from personal experience, yes. I remember many late nights working um, into in my office at the department where I would be writing briefs uh, for the minister to prepare Uh, at the time uh, to prepare her for her visits. And the thing with Australia's geographical isolation is that when our leaders go overseas, they like to visit multiple countries because Australia is so far away from everything and they need to make the most of their trip. So what you end up finding is that you're preparing briefs for multiple countries so that the ministers or prime minister can get the most out of that visit. In many ways, it's speed dating where you go from one engagement to another. Uh, So, for example, towards the end of this year, um, there'll be some major meetings that um, the prime minister and foreign minister need to go to. There'll be, you know, the East Asia Summit. 
You know, Indonesia is also hosting the G20 this year. There's also the ASEAN summit. So you also get sort of um, periods of time. That, that one is all of those sort of November timeframe where all of these dialogues happen at once. And actually, we've also just been through an extremely busy period. The Shangri-La dialogue was last weekend. So uh, not only do you have the dialogue itself to prepare for, there are also these side calls, um, which is where a leader will have, a, you know, a bilateral pull aside with their counterpart where they want to talk to, you know, say, for example, um, we want to talk to Japan about uh, ratifying the Australia-Japan reciprocal access agreement. You know, you can get a lot of work done on the sidelines of the, these meetings. And through my report, I didn't want to downplay the value of these engagements. They are critical to Australia's economic, security um, and other, you know, other critical issues to Australia that we really need to be there and show up. It's just that there are too many of them. And this kind of scattergun approach that we've had in the past, it, it can't continue on um, into perpetuity. Hayley, final question. You were uh, able to list for us the groups that you thought had passed their use-by date, but I didn't ask you which ones, where do we get the best return, uh, you know, which ones deserve special attention if you had to name three or four? So there's a couple of different ways to answer this one. I mean, firstly, there's my personal opinion about which groups I think are the most important for Australia. In my opinion, the groups most important to Australia right now, based off of how they're performing right now, are the Australia-US-Japan trilateral, the Quad, and AUKUS. However, I can answer that question differently if you were to ask, you know, which groups with added resources could actually deliver a lot more than they have been doing previously. I think that's a more interesting question and also one that I can answer with less bias because I've done a lot of research into this, speaking with a lot of people in both government, academia and the private sector to just understand this. And in addition to the Quad, um, the other groups that are really promising and people should keep an eye out for in future are the East Asia Summit, um, the Pacific Island Forum, and this new trilateral, the Australia-India-Indonesia trilat. And just to briefly touch on why, well, I think we know why the Quad, you know, it's um, possibly the four most important and influential countries in the Indo-Pacific, except for maybe Indonesia, should also be considered in that group. Um, the East Asia Summit is fantastic because the East Asia Summit captures all the countries that live in the boundaries of our Indo-Pacific region, from India in the west to, you know, um, Japan in the east and down to Australia. All of those countries, including Russia actually right at the top, are in the East Asia Summit. So it has all the critical players. And then the Pacific Island Forum. I mean, it's getting more and more important because of Chinese influence in the Pacific and also the Pacific's, um, the value of Pacific stability to Australia. And then finally, the Australia-India-Indonesia uh, trilateral. That is at very early stages. Um, you know, I think only one meeting has been held so far. The reason that one is worth watching is because that grouping includes Indonesia and the importance of getting Indonesia into a group outside of ASEAN really cannot um, be overstated. Indonesia is going to be critical in the future and having it play a more active role in the region will really serve Australian interests and create more um, regional opportunities and stability. 
Hayley Channer, thank you. Thanks for taking us through that impressive kind of spaghetti soup of acronyms, but also giving us a, <laughs> a, a useful a useful insight into the way in which Australia is going about engaging with the world currently, what we should be paying attention to and what perhaps uh, less, where perhaps less attention is called for. Um, so really appreciate your time today. It's a real alphabet soup and thanks to everyone for sticking with it. That's uh, Hayley Channer, who's a senior policy fellow at the Perth USA Asia Centre. And we'll post a link to her report, Maximising Australia's Memberships, on the Between the Lines homepage. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. Hi, I'm Kylie Morris. And coming up next, the state of Florida versus the Disney Corporation. Part of everything we'll be doing in Disney World will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. The need is not just for curing the old ills of old cities. We think the need is for starting from scratch on virgin land and building a special kind of new community. Now, if you thought Disney World Orlando was a magic kingdom, well, you would be partly right. For the last 50 years, it's also operated as an experiment in municipal governance. It's a place run and governed by private enterprise. It's autonomous, self-regulating. And for a big corporation like Disney, there's a certain attraction to being free of local planning and zoning laws, being able to collect and pay yourself taxes as well as providing and controlling local services. But this experiment in private enterprise government could all come crashing down uh, to explain what's happening and to take us through the machinations and the ramifications. I'm joined by Zach Weissmuller, who's a senior producer at Reason, a leading US libertarian magazine and video website. Zach, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Zach, the latest chapter in this story began a few months ago when Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, brings in his parental rights in education bill. Now, opponents labelled that the don't say gay law. Can you explain that to us? Tell us how Florida's most powerful company and the state's popular governor came to blows. Sure. So this law is one of a slew of laws that has passed, been passing in mostly Republican, you know, GOP dominated states in the U.S. Uh, to fight what they see as the incursion of gender ideology into the schools. So teaching kids about uh, sexuality or uh, transgender issues at ages that some people think it's too young to be introducing. And so this is one of the big cultural battlegrounds in the U.S. right now. Um, and uh, Ron DeSantis is, you know, if Trump doesn't run, he is the likely Republican front runner. So he's really planting his flag and you know, taking a stand on the, these hot culture war issues. And so he and the Republican dominated legislature here in Florida uh, passed that law, the Parental Rights and Education Act, and it quickly became not just a Florida issue, but a national issue, as you mentioned, labeled the don't say gay law by its opponents. And what it does is says that in 
grades K through three, uh, kindergarten through third grade, you can't broach these topics. And then in the older grades, it's you can only introduce it in what they say is a developmentally appropriate manner uh, as defined by the kind of state level education agency. And Disney obviously is one of the largest employer, private employers in the state of Florida. And they also have a reputation of being very LGBT friendly. And they had this to some people kind of conspicuous silence around the issue. They obviously give a lot of political donations to candidates here in Florida. And I think the, the, the CEO, Bob Chapek, didn't necessarily want to rock the boat, but then the pressure kind of ratcheted up. And after the law was passed, he released a memo apologizing to his employees for not speaking out and saying they were going to throw money to other states where this kind of legislation was going to pass and also seize all political donations in the state of Florida. And then this set off a reaction from the Republican lawmakers in Florida who decided that the best way to kind of turn the screws on Disney would be to revoke the status of this special district that was created in 1966 called the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which as you mentioned at the top, gives them uh, surprising levels of autonomy to set up their own, infra- their own infrastructure, their own power system and water system. They even technically have the right to establish their own nuclear power plant that they've never exercised it and their own police. Um, and this arrangement has It's an unusual arrangement, but it's worked out fairly well, both for Disney and the state of Florida these past 55 years, um, and it's only now coming to a head. Zach, we'll get into, I guess, what the uh, impacts of that seemingly bureaucratic move by DeSantis might be. But first of all, let's put this in context. I mean, you, you, you gesture toward the scale of this. Uh, it's uh, the world's most visited resort, over 50 million visitors a year, uh, America's largest single employer site with 77,000 workers. Uh, for those of us who haven't been there or taken our kids there, uh, just how big, I mean, does it feel like Disney City? Does it feel like you've left Florida and uh, and and crossed a border when you arrive? That's exactly what it feels like. And that's exactly what Walt Disney's vision was for this. You know, he had Disneyland in California. That was the first theme park that they had set up. And what happened there was that in Anaheim, California, they kind of just plopped it right in the middle of the city there. And then all the tacky tourist shops started popping up, the neon jungle, and it really rubbed Walt and uh, his brother Roy the wrong way. And also the people in Anaheim were kind of annoyed by it. And so his idea here was, well, I'm just going to buy up as much land as I can somewhere. He ended up settling on Central Florida for various reasons and kind of bought these small tracts of land, ended up buying over 27,000 acres. So this is roughly the size of Manhattan. 
Um, it was all done in secret and they kind of patched it together and then decided we are going to use cutting edge at the time urban design to build this core and then have these green belts around it that insulate us from the surrounding world, the surrounding world really, so that we really are creating our own little kingdom. It sounds like they can't insulate themselves though any longer from Ron DeSantis. Tell us, I mean, Ron DeSantis is a big deal, obviously in the US and covered widely, but for Australian listeners, who is Ron DeSantis? I mean, we get a, a sense of him, I guess, as a kind of Trump protege. Yes, he, he is in a sense of a Trump protege. He won his election in Florida barely. It was within a couple thousand votes. Uh, there was a last minute scandal that his opponent underwent that kind of propelled him over the edge there. And then he really rose to prominence during the COVID-19 pandemic, because whereas all the governors were locking down their states and going in one direction, he went the other direction. And he was one of the first governors to say, we're not going to shut down our businesses anymore. Um, we're going to try to learn to adapt to the virus. And that gained him a lot of popularity among some people in the U.S. who agreed with him. Um, he was kind of the boldest person going in that direction. And uh, it attracted a lot of people to Florida, actually. Uh, you know, Florida has seen massive population growth, whereas some of these other states that were more restrictive, New York and California, have seen an exodus. So his national profile uh, raised during all that. And he also is just someone who he's taken the Trumpian strategy of really going into battle with the media, anyone who criticizes him, he uh, has, you know, passed laws to try to go after the tech companies in Florida for supposedly censoring conservative voices. So he's thrown himself right into the middle of, you know, every culture war that he sees. Now, it's one of his lieutenants, effectively, or another conservative um, politician who moves things on in that Randy Fine who's the state, one of the state Republican representatives, then gets involved, introduces a bill. What, what does that bill, what's at stake here for Disney? What does it stand to lose given Randy Fine's bill? Yeah, Randy Fine's bill revokes, it, it dissolves the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which was really a special taxing district and it started off as a drainage district of all things because Disney needed to drain all the swamplands to build this entire thing. And then they found a way that they could turn that into an autonomous district with its own facilities and infrastructure and government. It, it has its own elected board, although that board is elected by the 50 or so residents who live on the property who also all happen to be Disney employees. So it really is, you know, Disney's government. All the revenue that goes to them comes from the Disney Corporation. And what that has enabled them to do, the reason they wanted this arrangement was because it allows them to bypass all of the local zoning ordinances, establish their own building code. So when they 
you know, put up a giant fiberglass castle, they don't have to go to the Orange County planning department and, you know, get a bureaucrat to rubber stamp it. They can just do it. And so the Republicans, such as Randy Fine and uh, DeSantis, have kind of characterized this as they're taking away a special tax break for Disney. It's not quite so straightforward that they wanted a tax break this because they still pay taxes on top of what they pay in the district. What this really was for them was the ability to do whatever they want on that land. And that is what is being threatened because if this is dissolved, first of all, it's unclear exactly who will be responsible for the infrastructure since Disney pays for all of it now. Uh, some of the local government officials there are now kind of sweating bullets because they think they're going to have to raise property taxes significantly to, to cover that. Um, and DeSantis has even said, no, that's not going to happen. We're going to absorb Reedy Creek into the state of Florida government. So it's not exactly clear what's going to happen. This doesn't go into effect officially until June 2023. There's a lot of time to negotiate between now and then. And there are probably going to be some concessions on both sides. And if I had to place a bet, I don't think the Reedy Creek District will ultimately be completely dissolved. I think there's going to be some sort of give and take on both sides. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris. My guest is Zach Weissmuller, senior producer at Libertarian Magazine and video website Reason. Now, Zach, these special privileges that you describe go way back to, as you mentioned, Walt Disney. I understand he didn't live to see the project come to fruition, but was very much instrumental in setting it up. So tell us about the Orlando project how it came into existence. What was Walt's vision? What was the dream? So Walt created a little 10-minute presentation called uh, um, the Epcot Project. Uh, so a lot of your listeners might know Epcot. It's one of the five theme parks that are on the property. At the time, uh, was a very... Future had a very futuristic vision. Now, when you go there, it's kind of strange. It's almost this like weird retro futurism. Um, you know, Walt was a big, he was friends with Robert Moses, the uh, famous New York developer and uh, the person who ran the World's Fair in New York. And Disney had established attractions at the World's Fair. And so this was a very heady time for urban development where people were rethinking, you know, what can cities be? How can we harness this, uh, all this great new technology that's emerging in the post-war period to revive our cities that are experiencing a lot of unrest and riots? And Walt Disney in this presentation said he was actually going to turn Epcot into a city. Epcot stands for the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. And he is promising in this presentation that it's going to have 20,000 residents. There's going to be an urban center and the monorails are gonna bring people in from the, less, the lower density fringes. And it's going to be a demonstration of what a city could be. And so he was kind of selling the local officials at the time on that idea that we need all this autonomy enabled in order to do this. And you have to think about Central Florida 
at that time, it was, you know, agriculture, oranges, and, um, you know, some military technology being built there, but it was not a, a huge population center. So this is a huge idea from this very reputable company, uh, this beloved company, that they were going to build all this in Florida. Uh, a lot of this is is based on a, a book called Married to the Mouse, whose author I interviewed, and they were enchanted by this idea, and that helped to get it all done. But of course, Epcot never was turned into a living residential city, uh, and so that is why some of the politicians now are saying, "Well, this was done on." a little bit of false pretenses to begin with. So we're justified in taking it away now. It's in that book, Married to the Mouse, isn't it? Where um, where the Disney project is described as the Vatican with mouse ears, which I think is a really <laughs> yes. helpful, helpful way to understand it. So Zach, where do you see this dispute between DeSantis and Disney heading? If you know, in a year's time, Ron DeSantis decides to push through with ending these special arrangements, what happens then? Does Disney just hand over the oversight and, and go back to being regulated? There are a lot of complications. There are a lot of legal complications that w- would pop up as that process unfolds. One is that the Reedy Creek Improvement District, in order to fund the improvements on this giant tract of land, issues bonds. And they have over a billion dollars in bondholder debt. And if it is dissolved, it's unclear where, like who makes the bondholders whole. Again, does that now fall on the local counties, Orange and Osceola County? If so, they're probably going to file some sort of lawsuit against the state of Florida. This was all kind of baked into this deal. And it's one of those things that's just been around so long. And the arrangement is so entrenched that to just tear it apart like this, it, it takes a lot of untangling. And so I don't know that, that that's why I think that ultimately some sort of compromise is, is going to have to be met. You know, may, maybe Disney, you, you know, that they're allowed to, one perk they get here is that they can develop on their land without paying improvement fees to the local government. And maybe that's something that gets taken away, that now they have to pay the same fees that Universal or SeaWorld would. And that's, you know, that that evens the playing field or something like that. But they still get to maintain some autonomy. So I really don't see it. uh, Maybe I'm wrong, but it's hard for me to see it uh, getting absorbed into the state of Florida. And I don't know that Ron DeSantis really cares that much about doing that. Um, this is really just, you know, a political win for him because he's, you know, the Republicans here are portraying Disney as they're on the side of these woke leftist culture warriors, and we are fighting back. And this is how you fight back. And that's really what he wants to show that he is this guy who, like Trump, is going to use his power to fight back against this culture. So he's a kind of a ringmaster in the culture wars, which is yes. where, he, where he wants to be. Presumably, though, Floridian, Floridian voters, if it starts to cost them lots of money to make up for the money that isn't being paid by Disney or the, the um, responsibilities that the state takes on, surely um, that 
will mean that the popularity of DeSantis's move might be damaged. I think that's right. I think that that's a that's certainly a, a cost that will a political cost that will have to be paid if if they actually go through and shift you know, the the funding of Disney's infrastructure onto local taxpayers. I've got to imagine a lot of those taxpayers are not going to be happy in an inflationary time to suddenly be seeing their property taxes raised because of Randy Fine and Ron DeSantis. So for the libertarians, what does the Disney experiment represent, the Disney dream? If it does end in a year's time, what will its legacy be? I think for libertarians, there's a lot of promise in this idea of semi-privatized autonomous zones. I, I went down to Honduras uh, several years ago, which tried to push this initiative to allow companies to create little zones with their own set of rules and governance that would the idea was that it would attract investment because they would be protected from the kind of corrupt national government there. There's a whole movement called the Charter City Movement that, that is trying to do that in places in Central America and Africa. And what Disney did was kind of the template. It kind of sparks the imagination. They didn't succeed in, or it's not even clear that they wanted to build a city of 20,000 residents, but it kind of put the idea out there and showed that a private company could at least maintain its own infrastructure and utilities and so forth. And so maybe this is something that could be done at scale in a developing country and, and help turn it around. So that is kind of the, the Disney dream that I think gets libertarians excited is the idea could privatizing some services that we typically think of being provided by the public sector, could that actually work? And, and could it actually help people live in a healthier you know, urban environment? Zach, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. That's Zach Weissmuller, a senior producer at Reason, a leading US libertarian magazine and video website. And we'll post a link to his video and article on Between the Lines homepage. And that's the show. I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for Tom Spitzer. I'll be back with more from Between the Lines next week. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.